There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And welcome to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino. Got a great interview for you all today with actor Cal Penn, who you might know from the Harold and Kumar movies from Van Wilder, the namesake Superman Returns, tons of TV shows like Sunnyside. I mean, he's been in so many things. He's a fantastic actor. He also worked for the Obama administration. He joined in 2009 as the principal associate editor in the White House Office of Public Engagement. Such an incredible career, both on camera and off. He's also got a book out in paperback now, which you can pick up. It's fantastic. And I just really love talking to him. He's going to be in the new Santa Claus TV series with Tim Allen on Disney+. Plus. So I got to talk to him a little bit about that. And when I did the interview, it wasn't announced yet that Bernard, for Santa Claus movie fans, you know who Bernard is, right? from the first Santa Claus movie and also in the second Santa Claus movie. Bernard wasn't in the third movie, but now they're doing this like mini series with Tim Allen. And after I did the interview with Cal Penn, it came out that Bernard is going to be returning as well. So I was asking Cal about that and now it's finally confirmed. So I'm excited about that. You know, I love the holidays. I do a holiday movie spinoff podcast called the Very Merry Iconic Podcast with my friend Jenna. We're going to be doing season, I think we're in season four or five uh, coming up this holiday season. And we're certainly going to going to be covering the Santa Claus TV series, which Cal is in. But he's had such an extensive career, and getting to talk to him about it was truly such a delight. I loved this interview, and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did, and his book is great. He's had just so many interesting things in his career, so I really hope you enjoy my chat with Cal Penn. As always, I'll put this up on the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Danny Pellegrino and the number one. Find me on social media at Danny Pellegrino on Twitter and Instagram, and I also just joined TikTok, too, at Danny Pellegrino. I joined a while ago, but I'm trying to add clips there now. So follow me on the TikTok too. Is that how they say it? Uh, you can get my book. It's called How Do I Unremember This? Wherever books are sold. You get the hardcover. There's also an audiobook, So you can listen to Cal and I both if you want to do it that way. Uh, and with all of that said, I want to thank ACAST and please enjoy my chat with Cal Penn. I'm so excited. We have Cal Penn, an actor and an author. His new book, You Can't Be Serious, is out in paperback August 9th. Cal, I'm so excited to chat with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Danny, This I'm not kidding you. This is the first time I've seen the paperback. Is oh you holding it? There I don't you have go. It. They that sent me all, a copy. That makes me very excited. I, I noticed, I mean, obviously because of the cover, but um, yeah, apparently my copies are on the way. I'm glad you got one. Early. Cal, look, look how worn my copy is because I flew through it right when they sent it to me. Uh, how does it feel now that it's coming in paperback? What was the response like putting it out there? Like, how are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling great. Thanks to, you know, thanks to people who actually read it. Uh, and, and I recorded the audiobook myself too, which was a lot of fun. And I didn't realize that was an option. So like after I turned in the manuscript, somebody from the publishing house called and was like, so are you reading your audiobook or somebody else? And I was like, are you kidding? The, like some of the stories are so specific that in order for the humor to work, I have to read it myself. So anyway, it was it was great. I mean, as, as evidenced by the fact that um, I'm just excited that there's a paperback. I know not every book gets one, so it has to sort of perform at a certain level. And I'm very thankful for that. Right. It's a big deal. And I have so many questions from the book. I mean, I'm a pop culture junkie. So some of my questions might lean towards some of the, the I don't know, broader pop culture things. But the first thing... First thing I want to ask you, though, is uh, Candace Cameron Bure's mom was your agent? Yes. Okay. So yes. tell me everything. Cameron's mom. I tell you everything. She was awesome. Okay. Um, she was she was incredible. So this, I, I know I described it in a little more detail in the book, but basically, like, so I, I moved out to California. I started uh, in the School of Theater, Film, and Television at UCLA as an undergrad. And it took me almost four years to get an agent, which is not common, right? Especially if you're at one of the best theater and film schools, people are sort of getting agents on the side and going out on auditions. And no matter what I did, I just couldn't get an agent. It was also, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, very different time in terms of people not looking for 
uh, diverse performers. And the only agent who ever responded to weeks and weeks for those several years of me mailing headshots, headshots out and saying, hi, I'm a new actor, aspiring actor, seeking representation. She was the only one who called. And I drove to her office. And, and I remember actually her office was in the back of her house at the, at the way far end of the San Fernando Valley. And I remember pulling up to this house. I didn't know it was going to be at someone's home. And I just, my first thought was, this is how people get tricked into doing porn. <laughs> this is literally like every story you've heard is like, I thought this was fine to go in the house. Um, but turned out to not be that, thankfully. Did you, were, were Candace or Kirk? I mean, I don't really love the Kirk of it all, but uh, were, did you get to see them around? Were they part of the equation at all? Uh, I met uh, Candace a couple times and, and it turned out that we had a mutual friend or two. So that was very sweet. Um, I did not meet Kirk Cameron. Obviously, I know you're you're alluding to folks' politics being a little different, but I, I got to say that that sort of even underscored it for me after the fact, right? I think a lot of times those of us on the left get a free pass for uh, the presumption that we're down for diversity and inclusion, and that's obviously not the case. Um, not to equate, you know, not to make a false equation between uh, two parties or anything, yeah. but but it, it that was one of the kind of the early the early experiences where I'm like, Oh, there's a whole lot of nuance in this conversation that just, I just wasn't getting as, as an undergrad. Right. Right. Uh, but no, the, I mean, to answer your question, look, she, she was awesome. I remember uh, I ran into, like, I remember going actually into their office. They had into her, her office. And I didn't, I didn't recognize that like um, Barbara Cameron was, you know, mom of Kirk and Candace Cameron until I think I was in the little waiting area, which was really just a couch, like behind a flimsy door before you got to her office. And uh, and I remember looking up and seeing like, oh, there's a Full House poster. That's cool. I wonder if she represents anyone on Full House. Oh, wow. There's a Growing Pains poster. Too. That's really cool. I wonder if anyone, wait a second. No way. So it, it, the reveal itself was like, not only is this definitely not porn, but like this is a wholesome family woman right. who, uh, who's, who's starting a children's agency. There are so many throughout the book, so many wonderful references to some of the 90s sitcoms and sort of the weird ways that your life sort of interwoven with things like uh, Steve Urkel and Full House and all of these things. So it was really, really fascinating. Uh, Talk to me about the early, some of the earlier auditions and some of the earlier roles you had specifically, there's a chapter about Van Wilder where uh, one of your reps had said to pick the 10 things from the script that you would want to change if you got this role. And I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about that experience. And then also, I want to know if there's anything that ultimately you wish that you would have fought harder for, for the Van Wilder project. Sure. Th- thank you for that question. And thanks for asking it that way. Because I think I also, like, I ask questions in exactly this way, which which sometimes makes me realize like, oh, I'm asking this as if I had a time machine, right? To go back. And I think I may have mentioned this in the, I know I do in the audiobook where um, I was like, okay, if the question is, would I wish that one of my first movies was like parachuting out of a plane and saving a bunch of good guys, you know, with a helicopter troop? Yeah, of course. I wish it was like a big action movie. Like, I feel like guys who look like Chris Evans get to do that for the first movie. Maybe not guys who look like me. So, I mean, do I wish there was a magic wand? Yeah, of course. But um, I, given that that wasn't the reality, I think what was a really interesting learning experience for me. So, look, uh, I, I didn't have credit. You know, no actor starts out with, with credits on the resume. Every actor, no matter what they look like, when you start out, you kind of get typecast into what does a casting director think? Somebody who looks like you would play. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, a guy who looks like me got to play, you know, a cab driver, store clerk, exchange student. And so there's there was this part that came around uh and Barbara Cameron called me. Uh, so Barbara called me and she goes, uh, Hey, there is a supporting lead in a teen movie with Tara Reed, who had just finished uh, American pie. Um, and Ryan Reynolds with the time was on two guys, a girl in a pizza place. And she just goes, this is such a huge role for you because it, it, it can get you in the door for things that I otherwise wouldn't be able to um, come to my office. I want to talk to you about it. And I was just so excited that I was like, what, what are you talking about? If it's that big of a role, like send me the script, I'll read it right now. What's the name of the character. And this went back and forth. And Barbara Cameron was like, no, no, you have to come to my office. That's how big a role this is. I'm like, Barbara, just tell me the name of the part. I can't wait to read it. And she goes, okay, the name of the role is Taj Mahal. <laughs> and, and I hung up the phone on her. Uh, and she, you know, she called back right away. 
And she's like, I knew you were going to do that. Now, listen, and, and this is what, what you'd ask. She, she basically walked me through, like, for, for any actor to, to get your foot in the door, but particularly a performer of color at that time, in order to get your foot in the door, you might have to take certain jobs that you might not necessarily want to take. Now, in my case, I view actors have different perspectives on this, but especially at that time in my career, I, uh, I obviously knew the importance of, of imagery and why representation matters. Um, but I also sort of viewed myself as I, I love playing characters, whether I agree with the content of the characters or not. I really like making people laugh. I like bringing people together. Um, but I, I didn't graduate from, you know, the UCLA School of Theater, Film and Television to play a guy named Taj Mahal, right? Um, so I had called a few friends. There was a, a mentor who's no longer in the industry, but she was a casting director, head of casting at uh, one of the heads of casting at NBC. And she was the only South Asian woman I knew in Hollywood. And, uh, and I said, what, what do you think? If I, if I get this part, should I play a guy named Taj Mahal? He's like an exchange student with an accent. And we talked about how an accent itself does not make a stereotype, right? Plenty of people have accents. It's just that when something like an accent or another racial signifier is the only thing that drives a character's motivation, then that's the, you know, that's the definition of a, of a stereotype. Um, and she goes, tell me what the character's about. I was like, well, what's kind of cool is he's, an 18 year old college freshman who just wants to get laid. Like in terms of the genre of these types of films, the plot doesn't advance without him. So the conversation was like, okay, so it's not just the side character without whom the plot would still go forward. I'm like, no, not at all. And then to your question, she goes, so what's the, how many things in the script do you think are problematic? I'm like, well, the thing is, it's not that, that the stuff offends me as much as I think some of it's really boring too. You know, these are jokes that have been made for, for decades. Um, Okay, how many things? I don't know, like 30? She goes, okay, you can pick 10. Pick 10 things in the script, and if you get the job, sit down with the writers and director and ask them if you can change those 10 things. Uh, but you you can't just say that and walk out of the room. You actually have to come up with 10 things that are funnier than what they came up with, because you have to understand they're just trying to make people laugh. And that was the first time, this is going to sound silly and basic, but like that was the first time I realized I actually had some agency in these conversations. And it reminded me of the whole reason I wanted to be an actor in the first place. It's like, you don't want to have to navigate racial or ethnic politics. You're an actor because you love storytelling. And so I was very thankful to her for that. And then at the audition and then ultimately having gotten the part, really thankful to obviously the writers and Walt Becker, who was the director, but Ryan Reynolds also who saw in me a desire to improvise and be funny and find comedy. He encouraged it. He improvised with me. And so the end result was like, you know, I still played a character named Taj Mahal, but without that job, I wouldn't have gotten Harold and Quargo to White Castle. Without Harold and Quargo to White Castle, I wouldn't have gotten uh, a movie called The Namesake, which was one of my, my favorite dramas that I had the chance to do. Um, so I was excited to tell all these stories in the book because I think you – it's like it, it's the slow version of these mm-hmm. stories. Right? It's not like mm-hmm. a quick article or even this conversation. You read the book, so you know how much got, gets left out. But that context to me is always really interesting to share with people, especially nowadays, 20 years later. And what I'm curious about is now when you're auditioning for something and you're reading a script, a feature, a TV or whatever, are you finding there are maybe less things that you would want to change in a script? Or, or what's been the evolution from from then, from an audition like Van Wilder to now? Yeah, I think what's very cool is that audiences have changed and the and content creators have as well. And I'm going to I'm going to credit uh, a lot of the streaming platforms for that. Right. Over the last 10 years, if you think about the type of content that exists and I'm not even talking about ethnic, racial, sexuality, economic, all of that, obviously, yes. But just the nature of stories, like how much shit about vampires is on some of these streaming platforms? How much stuff about, you know, worlds that we couldn't even fathom that would never end up on a, on a traditional network. So that in addition to the fact that you have uh, a, a lot more diversity in, in content creators and executives and audiences just want to see characters they haven't seen before, no matter where they're from. Right. Uh, when the hardcover of the book came out, a lot of the headlines were about sort of your coming out and you, you talk in the book about a relationship that you have. And I wonder coming out sort of in a public way, what has the response been like both personally and professionally? Have you noticed big, big differences? Does that make (laughs) sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I haven't noticed uh, any differences in my life. I think because I, uh, as far as I was concerned, I was living openly for a decade or more. Uh, Was that, wait, so was that weird that like, all of a sudden became a thing, but I don't even think you, if you, you necessarily like there, there wasn't a chapter in the book where you're like, and I'm out. It was just, you were telling a story about a relationship and, and that was sort of the way that it came out. So 
what was it like also reading all these headlines? Well, so that's what I, I, I think in retrospect, you know, I, I was uh, very naive, I think. And I, I'm, I'm not one of those people who's very good at how people view me. So my thought process was, okay, most of the book is well-researched and the subtext is about how uh, systems change over time, right? Whether it's Hollywood, whether it's politics in Washington. And so within that, I wanted to include a couple of fun and funny stories. Like it, it could be a heavy handed book, but it's not like, this is the kind of book that I want you to be able to read on vacation at the beach or, or by the pool. Uh, and so the story about how my partner Josh and I met to me was funny because it was about a failed date where like after the first date, I was like, okay, this like, maybe this will be fun for a week, but probably not. This is probably never going to work out. And now we're engaged. Right. Uh, so I included it in the book, perhaps naively, like, then the book comes out and all of these, these very well-meaning, by the way, it was all love. Like I'm not yeah. suggesting it was all love, but a lot of the articles that like, to me made it sound like gay Cal Ben writes big gay book, <laughs> buy this big gay book now. And then of course, if that's what you thought the book was about, you bought the book, you're like, what the fuck is this? This is not a gay book. Uh, uh, so I, I almost felt bad. Like I was disappointing somebody by not by the book, like not being gay enough. Uh, but I, I think uh, I probably underestimated what maybe sells clicks to, folks in the media. So, uh, you know, I, I was joking with some friends. I was like, well, I guess if I was going to do, do it all over again, I would have given two uh, two chapters to magazines like well in advance. Like mm-hmm. I would have given the chapter about how Josh and I met either to like ESPN, NASCAR.com or people just to be like, here, run with this, do, do whatever you want to do with this. And then there's a story I tell about how um, I made a MILF joke on White House email, on like official White House email with the National Security Council. And I was like, that chapter I would have given to like Politico or the Huffington Post or the New Yorker, like way before the book came out. Those were the two chapters right. that I think were, um, thank- I mean, I was glad that there was so much interest in them. Uh, but but yeah, to your point, the the book is a, a memoir that's pretty well researched. And that was the one chapter that had like no merit to it. Okay. So since you sort of brought up these two differing things, the, the gay stuff and the political stuff. So I was just in an argument with a friend. We were talking about, you've got mail is my favorite movie of all time. Like, I, I don't know if you've seen it with Meg. Ryan I don't know, all time, but, yeah. but so there's this, this argument that uh, the Tom Hanks character is Republican and the Meg Ryan character would have been Democrat. And can that relationship nowadays work and so uh, i'm curious we, we sort of touched on politics or just what do you think in the world we're living in now obviously that movie was made in 98 99 which i think was a very different time for for the two parties or or, or whatever you want to say but uh yeah so i'm just kind of curious do you have any thought about that look it probably i mean look okay so i haven't seen you got mail in decades okay you need to cal i mean i know clearly it, i mean when you're when you're introducing like that's one of your favorite movies <laughs> Like not one of them. It's like my number one. It's like it for me. That's it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then I, I will rewatch it. Uh, yeah, I think probably it probably depends on where, right. The things get so polarized. So if you're in a, I don't know if you're, if you're in a, in an Oklahoma or a San Francisco, maybe not, maybe it seems far less likely, but I feel like if you're in a Pennsylvania, Michigan, um, maybe it also depends on who you are. I, I feel like, uh, and also like, look, are we, uh, are most of your list? Where do most of your listeners fall on the? Uh, on I think the- we have a pretty we have a pretty diverse. I'd say it probably leans more liberal. I'm gay, and you know, but I, I do think I'm from Ohio too, and I talk a lot about Midwest and all that kind of stuff. So I, I do think we have a large segment of listeners that are also far fall to the right a little bit. But I personally I am lean left. I also hope. I mean, I don't want to say I hope you know because whatever do do the relationship that's right for you, but. Uh, that question to me reminds me of um, the, there are a handful of Republican friends who I, I love having like three beers with definitely not more than six uh, just because the lively conversation is like, it's so much different than when you're reading Twitter, you know, yelling at your phone or like tweeting something back at somebody that, by the way, like I'm the first to acknowledge the nasty tweeting feels great for like 30 seconds, but it doesn't necessarily accomplish anything in terms of you changing somebody's mind um, or a politician acting because they saw something on Twitter. And so I'm always a fan of, of any sort of in-person conversation over something casual. I feel like, feel like the the relationship is like the next level of that though. So yeah. yeah. Uh, Okay. So you worked at the Obama white house and we talked a little bit about Twitter. And sometimes when I think you, we can log on to social media, everything can feel so 
so terrible and the world is on fire. And what can you tell us to make us feel good about where we're headed politically in the world? Can you at least like, I don't even, you know, if you need to make something up, but can you? <laughs> I mean, I won't lie. The world is on fire, okay. Yeah, but I think the, the way that we respond to that is we're, it, we're at a, a really critical juncture, right? The, the reason that I mentioned the tweeting thing is not to discourage anyone from doing that, but very, very little comes out of uh, wasting a half hour writing paragraph after paragraph on your crazy uncle's Facebook wall. Like, I know it feels like, haha, I got him, but like, you're not actually doing anything, right? So the, the idea of channeling that rage into something hopeful, whether that's working in your own community or the, it sounds archaic at this point, but okay, did I, can I register five people to vote before the next election and help them get to the polls? And sometimes it's not a national election thing. Sometimes it's in your own community. Think about how much I live in New York City. You know how hard they make it for people to vote in New York City? It's insane. We had an election last week. There's another election for different offices in August. And then there's the third thing after the primaries in November. That's New York City, right? So even in a place that we think of as being progressive, there's still a lot of voter suppression that happens. All of which is to say uh, people in power sort of want you to feel uh, complacent, right? If they've Mm -hmm. convinced you that nothing truly matters, then then you're complacent and then nothing will matter because you're not going to do anything about it. And if that's the choice you've made, that's the choice you've made, but we're not at that point yet. We still have a long way to go and, and a lot of opportunity to prevent that from happening. And some of it might be, look, I'm, I, I'm, I'm in the camp of, I hope the president expands the Supreme court. I hope the president does more uh, on the filibuster. Um, I, I was excited to see, even though it took a little while, I was thankful to see him say, we should, you know, we should make an exemption to codify uh, a woman's right to choose. So even those types of things where you don't just want to pressure somebody who you agree with on 90% of things and make it seem like you're not creating a tenable space for them to act. Mm-hmm. The whole point is you want to do something to make them act. I, I don't know how much time we have. I can give you a, like a practical example. Yeah, please. That was so interesting. I don't know if this And is then a- I want to ask you about the Santa Clauses, but go ahead. <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, I, I can't remember uh, how much of the story was in the book, but uh, one of my tasks, and granted, this was 10 years ago, right? But one of my tasks as Obama's liaison to young Americans was I, I had to help put together a summit for young people in climate change. Okay. And this was during the first three years of the administration. Um, and so the, the we decided we were going to invite, I think we had the capacity for like 120 people. And we thought, okay, a third of those people will be the young progressives who you think should be in the room like this. Another third are going to be... Um, young people who are like, who are, who are starting environmentally friendly businesses. So they actually don't care about climate change. They care about selling you a gadget that will charge your phone from the kinetic energy that you carry around with you. So like that was an interesting group of people. The other third were young evangelical Christians, and they may not agree with the science of climate change, but their viewpoint was, um, we were put on God's earth to take care of it. And so we're going to do everything we can to take care of it. Now, from our perspective in government, it didn't matter how you got there. If you were going to be helpful in moving climate change legislation, which ultimately failed, unfortunately, under that administration, but I'm hopeful that Biden can sort of push it through. And, and his proposals are even more aggressive than Obama's were. But but you want to bring those people together, right? Otherwise, when are those groups talking to each other? And I also remember at that same meeting, there was a wonderful organization. They were on the left. Um, the two exec directors were invited to the meeting. And I remember outside of the White House, there were about 50 young people with incredible energy wearing the T-shirts of this organization, holding picket signs that were saying things like, shame on you, Obama. Obama doesn't care about climate change. Like all this this sort of agitating stuff. And they had every right to do that, of course. But I remember pulling the the two women from the organization aside and saying, hey, I'm just super curious, like why you guys brought 50 protesters to this summit? And they said, with no sense of irony, they were like, you know, we just wanted to make our voice heard. I'm like, when you're invited to a meeting at the White House, your voice is being heard. Mm -hmm. Um, What I couldn't say because of something called the Hatch Act, which prevents you from telling people to lobby other branches of government. What I couldn't say was those 50 amazing, energetic young people, their energy would have been much better spent if they went to Capitol Hill to convince the Democrats who were on the fence, the Joe Manchins of the world, who were on the fence about climate change. Meet with those people. Try to convince them to get on board with the president's climate change proposals. And so the reason I'm, I'm telling you that story and answered your question is that unfortunately I think was, was misplaced energy. It's no fault of those incredible young people. They thought they were doing the right thing, but the, the, the things they could have pushed on and the targets that they could have pushed towards, I think at that particular moment 
were misplaced. Now, the argument could be made that, well, you, you pressured Obama to doing all the executive action stuff that he did in the second term. That, that might be true. But at that time, we still had the opportunity to pass climate change legislation. And um, I'm not saying the reason that we didn't is because people targeted the wrong folks. But it's just something to keep in mind when we sit there and go, what matters anymore? Who do we yell at? Sometimes right. it's more complicated than just yelling at the one person who you think is in charge. And I think that's like an excellent take home too, is just the misplaced energy of it all, because you can look at that on the the smallest of levels, like you said, with social media of, yeah, it's maybe not the best use of your energy to go on Facebook and yell at somebody. Uh, right. Yeah. Or it might be, but it's probably not. Right. Right. <laughs> we got to take a quick break here. We'll be back with more from Cal Penn. Look, the weather's getting warmer. You got to ditch the jackets, the sweaters, and you got to put on some shorts and tees. And if you're anything like me, you hate getting all the new stuff. But luckily, I've found Quince, and Quince makes it so easy uh, to get clothes. I used to waste my money on clothes that would only last one season. That was until I found out about Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I'll be wearing year after year. Quince has all of the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos. Those are my personal favorite. I always love getting new polos for the summertime, and they have a fantastic selection. I'm very particular about the collar, and I love the collar on the performance polos that I got. They also have versatile flow-knit activewear, and the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And by partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes, which I love. Feel good about shopping with them. Now, again, I got those polos, but I also got some shorts, some t-shirts, just some basics that I can wear year-round. So upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash iconic for free shipping on your order and 300 65 day returns. That's quince, Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash iconic to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash iconic. Ah, I love that sound, don't you? And that's the sound you're going to hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Uh, We use it here at Everything Iconic. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling all your business complexity, no matter how big you grow. I think it's fantastic. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache, but Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate all of your products, your orders, your customers, and more uh, from every major e-commerce platform all the way to Shopify. And I always hate when I'm shopping online and I have to re-enter all of my information. Well, Shopify store remembers your shipping address, your payment information. So if you're on the couch and your wallet's on the kitchen counter, you don't have to get up, which is nice. So sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash everything iconic, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash everything iconic. Shopify, S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash everything iconic. All right. I'm sure a lot of you out there can relate because every time there's a commercial break and I'm watching one of my shows, I'm always hopping on the Redfin app or website because I just want to check out real estate listings. Like I love checking out real estate listings, even for the houses that I cannot afford. It's my favorite app to use Redfin. Uh, I just got a home, of course, but it was a pretty stressful process. And if I would have known how easy Redfin was, I think it would have helped out a lot. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. See something you like? Well, book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, making it so easy. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents with a listing fee as low as 1%. Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards your next home. Now, that's a great thing. I love using Redfin. I love checking out. If you're buying or selling a home and you need some help with that, check out Redfin. Download the Redfin app to get started. 
Okay. So I, I said I was going to ask you about the Santa Clauses. Now mm-hmm. I grew up with the Santa Claus movies. And yeah. so I'm very excited that Disney plus is doing this new Santa Claus TV mini series or something. What can you tell me about it? Is Bernard not back? Like, do you know uh, who the character well, of Bernard is and who, what can you tell me? Of course, about? I'm a huge, I'm also okay, a good. huge. Okay. Good. Uh, so, okay. What am I allowed to say? Cause we're not allowed to talk about plot characters. Uh, I guess costumes until they post something, although they finally posted one of the like teaser photos that we all took together. Um, What I can say is as a fan of that franchise, I was floored that I got to be in it. And it looks to me, the look and feel is very like, if you loved the originals, I think you'll love this one. I play a tech guy. So the, the story or at least the part of the story I think we're allowed to share, I hope, otherwise we'll hear you go anyway, is that uh, Tim's, uh, Tim Allen's character, uh, obviously he's Santa Claus, and he decides that he's going to retire. Um, and so there's a search that's put out to, to find a replacement for Santa. I happen to play a tech bro. Um, uh, I don't want to say it's like a Musk or a Bezos, but for lack of a better phrase, maybe a, a guy who's very well known for being like this tech guru um, who knows a lot about delivery systems in a changing world. And so we, we sort of, you know, I, I end up uh, um, auditioning is not the right word. What's the real world? Uh, interviewing, interviewing for uh, interviewing for the job. And, um, and so, you know, but it's only six episodes. So I got to go work at the North Pole every day with people who, you know, whose acting I've admired since I was a kid. It was it was really, really fun. Okay, good. Because I'm nervous about it because I love the franchise so much and I want it to be good. And also, we're all concerned about Bernard and Charlie and whether or not they're coming back for it. I know. I've read some of the uh, okay. it's so funny. You, we talked about like uh, people's visceral reactions to politics. It's so funny that for, <laughs> for a franchise that's this beloved, the like the profanity tweets about whether <laughs> certain or, or aren't coming back. Like, oh, this is just how we talk to each other now. <laughs> I keep getting a Google alert because, and I, mine wasn't, mine wasn't a um, profanity filled tweet, but when that image came out, I just, I simply tweeted, where's Bernard? And yeah. that was added in all the news stories about it. Yeah, yeah. And so I've been, there's been a Google alert every time there's a news story about this, this show. And the other ones, I'll look at the other tweets and they will be like, where the F is Charlie? Or like, you know, like people are pissed oh, yeah. about it. Um, my favorites so far are also, uh, and by the way, I mean this with love because I, uh, I, I will paraphrase. There was a, uh, um, an acquaintance of mine who played professional sports and I remember watching him get booed one day <laughs> and I was like, dude, after the game, like, how did that make you feel? Like, I can't imagine doing a play and the audience while I'm like doing my lines, the audience is like, you suck. Uh, and he goes, no, you know what? From, from the, from like the basketball player's perspective, they're having fun. They're invested in the game. They're doing their thing. So I've tried to use that when I read things about projects. So for this, it was funny. There's there's like a small subset of people who are like, is Cal Penn Santa? Is there a brown guy at the North Pole? That would be amazing. I would love that. Another subset of people, oh my God. this wokeness needs to stop. If Cal Penn is Santa and ends up at the North Pole, I'm never watching this show ever again. I'm like, so emotional for both for a Santa Claus series. I mean, I, and on some level, it's it's probably great that people are so passionate about this world of the Santa Claus. I, sort of, I love about storytelling is if you can make people forget that a forget that like Santa, the North Pole are this beautiful fictional creation for the holidays. And they're like fighting over that. Like, okay, they're invested. They're invested in this right. project. I mean, everyone loves part one, but I would say some of the best scenes uh, some of the best holiday movie scenes are in the part two, where there's a scene with Molly Shannon that is incredibly brilliant and funny and whatever. And then there's also these really gorgeous scenes between Elizabeth Mitchell, who plays Mrs. Claus, and Tim Allen in the second one that are so beautiful. And and so, yeah, I just, I have high hopes for it. Um, okay. I want to run through some of your other credits. And I just want to get some thoughts or an experience or, or first thing that comes to mind, whatever you want to say about these things. Okay. Um, so I guess we, we started about holidays, uh, deck the halls, anything you remember from that feature film with, I believe Danny DeVito and I Matthew Broderick. Tiny, tiny part. I didn't meet any of them. I played like a, a newscaster. Um, and <laughs> the director wanted an Indian accent and I said, no. 
And he was like, well, I want, and then I, I did the thing that I always used to do back in the day, which was, um, I can do any kind of accent you want, that you want. What do you want? You want Brooklyn, British, Irish, Scottish? And he actually goes, oh, yeah, give me British. I'm like, uh, can I just speak the way I normally do? No, no, we need an accent. And if you won't do Indian, then you can do British. I was like, all right, fine. Okay. Um, <laughs> but now, I, I was so fascinated in the book, you talking about this and people asking you for an accent. And yeah. is it how many times is this? This must just happen all the time then. Like how awful. <laughs> it would happen all the time. I mean, the reason it was annoying is like, like we were talking before, is it, it's just so reductionist, right? It, right. It, I don't find an accent alone to be offensive or stereotypical or, or any of that. It's just reductionist. So if a character, if there's something that drives a character beyond just the way that they speak, then to me, that's what grounds the human and it's what moves the plot along. So it's always weird when uh, casting directors or producers will refer to an accent as the thing that makes it funny, because generally that means they know that their writing is subpar and they're trying yeah. to mask bad writing. And and so to me, that's really at the, at the core of what it is. As somebody who loves comedy, how do I make something funny without reverting back to something that's already been done before? You know, I've been auditioning for a lot of stuff recently and it's always the, the gay character. And I notice in a lot of these scripts, cause I'm also a writer that it's like, there's, there's kind of these gay signifiers too. And I'm a lot of the reaction is almost to gay it up a little bit more. And yeah. the character is always the assistant. It's always like the assistant of the female lead or something. And it's like always serving the, the, the female or male lead as the assistant at the company they work. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's it, a lot of that is uh, is who the protagonist is, right? And and through whose lens are you are you viewing things? And then also you're you're hitting the nail on the head between you know a lot of folks some, sometimes uh, get confused on the difference between um, between checking the box on diversity and actual representation, you know, and and, and what that means. So uh, so the more writers and execs are sort of in the room, the more that moves in the right direction, I think, and, and, and makes it more interesting for audiences. Uh, okay. I'm going to throw out another role. Uh, Love Don't Cost a Thing with Nick. Oh, Cannon. that was so much fun. Yeah. Love Don't Cost a Thing. The first, that's the first a classic time. too. I feel like that's a classic. It, it was, it was a class. I mean, we, we were remaking a classic, right? It was, it's a remake of Can't Buy Me Love. Um, but I had the best time and, and uh, Nick Cannon, Keenan Thompson, they were, they were wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Superman Returns. So I got was that trouble troublesome? Wasn't that Brian Singer? Did he direct it? He directed that. Yeah. Okay. That one I got. Uh, I had like a twenty minute subplot that ended up. Uh, I ended up getting cut out of because the movie was too long. But I uh, I had a great time working on that. That was uh, the first uh, first time. Yeah. Uh, my my buddy Brandon Routh, who plays Superman, we had been friends for like six or seven years before that. Uh, Mike Doherty and Dan Harris, who co-wrote the movie, uh, are still close friends of mine. And I just wish I, <laughs> I wish I had had a bigger part because right. he doesn't want to be in a in a superhero movie. I also wanted that one to get a sequel. I liked that that Superman. I thought it was good. Thank you. It was fun to do. Yeah. Uh, okay, Sabrina the Teenage Witch with uh, my my arch nemesis Melissa Joan Hart. Um, why she nemesis? There's there's no real reason. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was sort of a joke that I took too far, and now. Um, I, I call, you know, now I call her my arch nemesis and a lot of people ask, and there's, there was really no reason. I just think it's important that we all recognize that it's okay sometimes to have an arch nemesis. Yeah. Have you had her on the show? No, no, but I actually, I've tried, I, I think we're going to try soon to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That show was not one of my favorites. I do detail half a chapter in the book about why. Uh, (laughs) So that one, I, I, it was a, a tiny part. I just—I was just in one episode, uh, and I—I uh, I, I remember like planning this whole backstory for the character. So all I knew about the character was he's this guy who is uh, in Sabrina's college study group, and it's just a couple of lines. And so I made this whole backstory about how all right, my character is from the Pacific Northwest, and he likes small batch organic coffee and brews, and wears like loves Pearl Jam and Nirvana from back in the day. So I wore a flannel to the audition, and and I walk in, and I read I read it once and I walked back to my car and the casting director was running after me and he goes, Hey, the producers want you to do it again. I was like, Oh shit, that's awesome. Like that's always a good sign. And right before I walked in, he goes, yeah, they want you to do it again. Um, this time with, uh, an Indian accent. And I was like, ah, oh. so 
I kind of thought, and, and the, I walk in, the producers go, hey, we, we want you to do it again with an accent. And I said the thing that I always say, which is, what kind of accent do you want? I can do, you know, British, Scottish, Brooklyn, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the one producer goes, uh, why don't we just stick to Indian? I was like, oh, brother. Okay. So, and I thought to myself, like, look, the choice is mine. I, I can walk out. I don't have to do that, that audition. And then the other part of my brain was like, well, the job pays 750 bucks. My rent is 550 a month. I was sharing a room with a buddy at the time. I knew getting a credit on a resume would be important as an aspiring actor, young actor. So I decided to, to do it. And uh, I did it for the audition. They called my agent, Barbara. Barbara called me like a half hour later and she was like, you got the part. Uh, and I told her what had happened. I said, is there any way you can ask them if I could just like do this part the way I normally speak? I created this whole backstory for the guy. Uh, and she goes, you know, one of the things, if you know you're going to take the part anyway, because you need the, the credit and the money, then just hold your head up high and go, go in a little early, talk to the director and see if, you know, see if he'll change his mind. So I went in early that day, the day of the shoot, I pulled the director aside. I was like, Hey man, thank you so much. Your show is so funny. Um, I was just wondering if I could play this part without the Indian accent. And he goes, Oh no, we hired you to do that accent. So that's what you're going to do. And then I remember thinking like, well, you know, um, maybe he just doesn't know, right. They say that, that racism comes from ignorance. He probably doesn't even know that, that this could be considered kind of racist, you know, it's the late nineties. So maybe awareness is low. So I said, you know, uh, I never got to grow up watching characters who look like me, who didn't have reductionist accents or whose, whose characters weren't tied into their ethnicity. So wouldn't it be awesome uh, if I could just play this part without an accent? And he goes, no, no, I understand. I'm just telling you uh, that accent is funny. And so that's what you're going to do. So then I remember thinking, okay, maybe I just need to push a little harder. So I said, you know, my little cousins, uh, they're kids and they love watching Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And so I was just hoping for their sake, wouldn't it be cool if they could turn on the TV and see kids who look like them uh, without uh, without a stereotype? And uh, the, the director goes, uh, you know, um, your little cousins should be lucky that you're allowed to be on TV to begin with. And uh, so should you. And he walks off and I was like, oh, okay. So it's not ignorance, right? It's not at all ignorance. It's, it's a very purposeful decision about the retention of power, about, uh, mm-hmm. about a lot of different things that I, I just hadn't anticipated. Cause again, I was, I was a little naive about it. Um, again, could I have left? Probably. I chose to play the part the way they wanted me to play that part. So I'm not suggesting that anyone else is to, to blame for that decision. But um, when you mentioned Sabrina the Teenage Witch, that's the first thing that comes to mind. You know what, Cal? Now I, now I have a reason she's my arch nemesis. Oh, I don't know that <laughs> had anything. I don't know that she even knew that any of <laughs> I know, but you know what? We're, you know what? But that director? She was a producer on there. She could have figured it out. Melissa Joan Fart, we're oh. upset. We're upset. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. Um, I got to ask about Harold, Harold and Kumar. Will there be a, there's been three, right? There's three. three the yeah. third was the Christmas one, which I love. Um, would there ever be another one? Is there one thing that you remember? You talk about that process in the book and I, those movies are mean so much to so many people. Uh, I hope we get to do a fourth one. I, I always make this uh, this joke about like, I would love it if there would be a Harold and Kumar 69 when I'm 100 years old, mostly just to make a 69 joke on national television. Yeah. Uh, but truthfully, I mean, the, Kumar is so much cooler than I will ever be. I love playing that character. Uh, John Cho and I are, are very close friends. Uh, John Hurwitz and Aiden Schlossberg, the two guys who created the franchise, also created Cobra Kai. So they've been really busy the last few years. But I, I think our collective hope is that we would love to do at least... Uh, at least one more. And personally, having not talked to anybody about this, I, I'd love if it were for a streamer. Like most people watch those movies on DVD anyway. So yeah. it'd be cool if now that there's a Hulu and Amazon and Netflix, if it was just a, a, a streaming film. I sort of miss the era of the movies coming out with like an unrated edition, which I'm sure that did, but it was like, you'd get like one, I don't know. There would be like one extra boob or something in the unrated edition. About this, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is true. This was just I remember hearing about this at the time because we we also had an unrated version. The theory I remember hearing was that I think it was Walmart that wouldn't carry rated R movies, so studios started releasing uh, unrated versions. Interesting. I think it was something that makes like sense. Yeah, but then but so then it was just more gratuitous, but they could also sell stuff. 
Uh, Cal, I could talk to you forever, but I know I have to let you go. So I just want to wrap this up by asking you just three more questions. The first uh, two are things that I ask all of my guests, which are your favorite Mariah Carey song. And if you were choosing for People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive, who would you choose? Oh, my gosh. And you Uh, can't choose your significant other. It has to be someone famous. Okay. All right. Um, I think the 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 uh, Mariah Carey Christmas song. uh, Classic. Yeah. Uh, gosh, se- sexiest man alive, man or woman or person? Uh, it could be either, I suppose. Yeah, we say man, but man, we, can, well, we can do. We can make the rules. We can do. We can do man. I mean, but who's everyone's already on the list? Who's kind of? I know that's it. They could be a previous person on the list. Um, who was there a co-star? Let me ask you this. Oh, you got to do John Cho. John Cho's been on the list. Has he but, been? Yeah, yeah. But he's hot. Yeah. Yeah, I was I mean, gonna ask, like out of all the people you've you worked with, is there's one man or woman who you just looked at and like, wow, they're like gorgeous looking, you know, like perfect looking. I mean, I work in TV every I know, they're all good looking. You know, it's it's actually very annoying because I'm like the, the question of um the question of like what do you what do you do to your skin? You know how many people so uh, Andy Sandberg's been a buddy of mine for 20 years. The number of people who ask me, like, you're boys with Sandberg, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking like they're gonna they're gonna compliment his comedy because he's a genius. They're gonna they're gonna say like when are you guys working together again? Something like that. No. What does he do to his skin, bro? His skin looks great. <laughs> like I, I don't know. I can ask him, I guess. I have not asked him, but uh but Sam Burns is another one, yeah. I love decorating the house and getting furniture, but sometimes it could be overwhelming to design a space. And so luckily I'm here to tell you about a company called Cozy. Now Cozy is fantastic, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture made for modern living. Now, Cozy strives to provide the best furniture shopping experience with elegant, super high quality products, plus fast delivery and easy assembly, which is really important to me because I do not like putting together furniture. So the easier, the better for me. Now, Cozy offers a beautiful, customizable sofas and sectionals that are made to adapt in time. This means customers can add seats to the sofas over time. Maybe if you're extending your family, you might want more space on the couch. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, credenzas, TV stands, and accessories. So much. It's thoughtfully designed furniture made for modern living. There's an outdoor sofa and tables collection that is fantastic. It's called the Mistral. So you can choose the perfect sofa configuration for your outdoor setup. Uh, Cozy also opened its first retail space on Queen Street in Toronto to push the experience to the next level and allow customers to engage physically with the products. So transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com, spelled C-O-Z-E-Y, to start customizing your furniture today. Again, that's Cozy, C-O-Z-E-Y.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, now my last thing, Cal, and you might, maybe you don't want to play along with this. And I understand if you don't want to, but so basically my previous guests are coming up with a person. So last time on the show, we had a guy named Matt Rogers, who's an actor and, and I had him uh, say why he thinks Anna Ferris deserves an Oscar. And I would throw out a role and he'd have to just say why he thinks Anna Ferris deserved an Oscar for House Bunny. So then I asked him now, give me someone for the next guest to ask to defend of why they deserve an Oscar. And so he threw out Rachel McAdams. So essentially, and you can make it up and say whatever you want, really, but why Rachel McAdams deserves an Oscar for one of her roles. Does that make sense? Yes. And and is there a role in particular of Rachel McAdams that you really think is great? Yes. And I just want to, I mean, the, 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 you, you're asking me, by the way, sorry, hang on. Let me get, no, please. Uh, I lost her. So first, I thought you were gonna. I thought I was gonna get to answer the Anna Faris question, and I, I have an Anna Faris story that is one of my favorites. Which okay. Is, there's one doctor in Hollywood who does all the cast physicals. So whenever you're doing a movie or TV show, you have to go get a physical, and it's always the same office. So you see, like, 
you see random people coming in and out of there. And I remember filling out like the forms. This was way back in the day before I did Van Wilder two. So how about contradicting myself there after doing Van Wilder one, I chose to go out and do a whole I think I owned it on DVD. I'm pretty sure the unrated edition. Uh, but I remember filling out the form and, and someone, I just hear someone go, Cal. And I look up and it's Anna Ferris. And we'd met like once or twice before then. She goes, how are you? I'm like, oh, good. How are you? She goes, uh, what are you, what are you here for? What are you about to work on? Van Wilder too. Okay. How about you? And her face distorts. And she goes, scary movie four. <laughs> and I was like, great. Okay. Awesome. So we're both like, we're both trying to pay some bills this year. Uh, Okay, but uh, I love that. I love that. Rachel McAdams. I mean, you're you're. I, I Mean Girls alone should be a reason. Okay, wait. So let me let me just set this up for you. So Cal Penn. Yeah. Uh, defend why Rachel McAdams deserves an Oscar. Go. Uh, the dichotomy between Mean Girls and The Notebook is every actor's dream. What a commensurate actor to go between those two in such a short amount of time. A genius she is. Right, 2004. I mean, the, she went from Wedding Crashers, Red Eye, Mean Girls. Yeah. Red Eye, that's right. Yeah, Family Stone was around that time. I mean, it was like an incra- a crazy couple of years yeah. for that woman. And she's oh, so really? talented. Mean Girls Alone. Mean Girls Alone. I'm, right. I, I, I can't remember. What was it? Was, uh, was it Marissa Tomei and My Cousin Vinny? Was, was that the last time an actor won for a comedy? Yeah, which she's brilliant in that as well. Yeah. Uh, Cal, name an actress for the next guest. Anyone? Oh, oh boy. Okay. Margaret Cho. I love that. Did you see Fire Island? She's, I mean, it's so great to see her on screen. Joel, Joel Kim Booster is incredible. I just yes, have worked. With, he was just on the show too. You guys worked on Sunnyside. He's the best. He, he's incredible. When, when we cast him, uh, it was very clear that he, and he was, I think the first guy we hired, first actor we hired from the whole cast. Uh, and he walked out of the audition and the casting director looks at all of us, the producers, the creators, and she just goes, um, uh, I assume it's very clear you're casting him. I'm like, uh, yeah, I mean, that's unheard of. Cause you don't get to like, you should usually talk about it first. We're all like, yeah, obviously we are. Why uh, a guy like that's going to get scooped up real quick. If I were you, I would uh, just give me five minutes so I can go call his agent, put the offer out, get the deal done. <laughs> Incredible. What a great guy. Uh Cal, there's a great story about Joel Kim Booster in the book. Everyone's got to check yes. it out. You publish his tweets and it's so, it's so fucking funny and so good. And so everyone pick up the paperback of You Can't Be Serious by Cal Penn. Cal, thank you so much for taking the time. I look forward to the Santa Clauses and everything you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Thank you so much. And congrats to you on your book as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Cal. Bye.